Hello, and welcome to Leather Talk with Mr. Bullet Leather 2020. I'm your host, Brandon. Today, we continue our conversation with Drew Kramer, who has been in the leather community since the late 80s and holds the title of Mr. Palm Springs Leather 2011. In this episode, there are some amazing moments where he speaks about his experiences with an organization known as ACT UP, one of the first of its kind solely committed to the direct action aimed towards ending the AIDS crisis. A friendly reminder to those just tuning in, this podcast is reserved for audiences 18 years and older. With that said, let's sit back, relax, and get ready for some more Leather Talk. Now, I'm curious to know about your sexual activity at this point. I mean, do, did you or, or did anybody you know at, at some point just say, you know what, I'm just not going to have sex until this is all figured out? Or were people afraid to have sex with each other? What was the dynamic there? Uh, there were not a small number of gay men who were basically like, I'm not having sex. Mm-hmm. I'm, going to, I'm going to go to the opera and I'm going to have uh, nice time on fire island during the summer and i'm going to jerk off and that's all and the other strategy was coupling two guys would go and get tested and if they were both negative that's it we're boyfriends now we're only going to have sex with each other regardless of how terrifically incompatible as people (laughs) they might be yeah and so there was this sort of like serial boyfriend phenomenon you know, that happened where, yes, I'm completely, absolutely monogamous with 42 men that I've been boyfriends with this year, you know, Mm -hmm. absolutely do not, you know, have sex outside of whatever relationship I have to be in, happen to be in this weekend kind of thing. But, you know, I, and something that I kind of include in my book is, you know, fear is not a great motivator for making good choices because you know if a friend of yours who lives in the same neighborhood you do is coming home from work one night and gets beaten up and stabbed and robbed oh my god you're fucking terrified to go out after dark but your brain can't maintain a state of fear for too long and eventually, you know, like, hey, we live in, in California. We know there's a really big earthquake coming that's going to, like, destroy everything around us. We know that. And, you know, maybe at times, like, when there is a big, you know, quake, it's like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. That would be so terrible. Oh, my God. But pretty quickly, we, like, talk ourselves in off the ledge, right? Right. We could do that with anything, including with okay, I just came home from a bar with this guy and he's really, really, really hot. He's like so many levels above me and he wants to have sex with me. And it turns out that neither of us have condoms. Hmm. So I'm going to say, well, sorry, maybe make it another time and, you know, head home alone. No, I'm not going to do that, you know. And then you're, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And then you get tested and one of two results, you know. Right. For gay men of my generation, you know, who are like sexually active up until uh, 1997, when effective AIDS treatments like literally took people off their deathbeds, if they had managed to hang on long enough until they got there. But up until then, like gay men of my generation had the experience of making the decision to have sex with somebody, even though that might mean I'm going to die and Mm -hmm. not die really quickly and quietly in my sleep. But I'm going to be, you know, 
in my own shit and piss and vomit, you know, and wasted down to a skeleton. And that's how, you know, and people, when my friends, if my friends come by to see me, when they come into the room, they're going to be like, <gasps> hi, oh, wow, hi, you know, yeah. you're going to die a pariah's death. And we made the decision that, like, sex was more important. The connection, the intimacy, the other person finding you sexually valuable, that experience was more important than death. It seems like at this point, I mean, a once like kind of cruise culture where everything was just kind of in the moment and making eye contact and going over to the bushes, like in some ways, every step you made and the decisions that you had to make at this point now had to be fully intentional. Yes. But there was also the like, not going to think about that, not going to think about that, not going to think about that. You know, like yeah. you had to enter into, to have sex with anybody at all, you had to enter into some level of denial, right? Because there was always the possibility. And that, that being at the back of your head would pull you out of any sexual headspace, I would imagine. Yes. So totally like, boop, not going to think about that. <laughs> right, right. Those incredible mental gymnastics we all had to master. Now, when it comes to kink, I mean, kink in BDSM a lot of times doesn't even result in ejaculatory fluid or anything, any kind of penetration. Um, was this a prime time for BDSM culture? Yeah, for, for a lot of reasons. You know, another, like, in the mid-80s in New York City, this group formed, mm -hmm. right, called GMSMA, Gay Male SM Activists, right? Okay. And totally different thing, totally different way of going about it. It was not a motorcycle club. It was not like uh, Avatar, you know, like a play party club kind of. It was just their values and mission were education and activism. And basically, like, part of that was letting people know that, no, BDSM wasn't shameful. No, BDSM wasn't sick. But it's just some other parts of human sexuality that might not be part of everybody's sexuality, but they're part of some people's sexuality. And, you know, so that's, it's a thing, right? And also, you know, we were talking about consent earlier. GMSMA kind of invented that, right? Mm. Because it was invented by, and I, using that term, serious People would disagree with me, you know, would call me out for using that term. But a guy who I knew named David Stein, who was a founder of GMSMA, in a newsletter going out to membership, you know, and not intending to start a big thing, but he just, he wrote for good, safe, sane, and consensual BDSM. Hmm. And he put those three together. And that gave, you know, especially with everything that was happening with AIDS, that was kind of like a way in for people, including people who were terrified. And, you know, David Stein, actually, he went to the mineshaft once and he was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, this is so terrifying. Get me <laughs> out of here. And that idea that, yes, we can do these things. And it can be really satisfying and fulfilling and sexy and hot, but it can also be safe, sane, and consensual. And those are three words that are used all the time today, safe, sane, and consensual. And uh, it's just so funny that you say that, like, the people that might, may have been scared of it in the past, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who their first experiences were, Oh, I was so afraid to come into a leather bar because I didn't know if where people are just going to be like, you know, touching me or groping me or making me have sex with them. Like, I don't know, <laughs> you know, <Right. laughs> but I can imagine, especially being it being such a secret kind of club back in the day, not wanting to step foot into those spaces because they weren't sure if it was going to be safe, sane or consensual. Yeah, and I, I, I have wrestled with consent. You know, mm -hmm. because I once, oh, like years and years and years ago, there was a discussion in comments on Facebook about groping. And I sort of like said something like, well, you know, there was a bar in New York City called the Dugout. And, you know, it was packed, like literally packed, like you were up against everybody. And when you 
made your way to the bar, you were groped, you know, and that's what the attraction was. That's why mm -hmm. I went there, you know, and what's the big deal if, if somebody gropes you, right? And somebody else in the comments basically said, well, you know, for me, it's a huge deal because I'm trans and somebody doing that to me is going to get a lot of information about me hmm. that maybe they have no reason to know. And I was just like, oh my fucking God, you're right. You know? And then also, I mean, not everybody had the incredible many d bullets dodged growing up in childhood, mm -hmm. you know, and men who prey on boys for sexual exploitation are really keen at picking up on little gay boys because they already have a big secret that they're carrying around with them and they'll be less likely to go to an adult if they have this other big secret that they're carrying around with them and so incidents of um, survivorship of childhood sexual abuse for gay men is really high mm -hmm. and so even though Yes, I am always looking for opportunities uh, to go into dark, gropey, particularly leather gay male spaces. I understand that every leather space that I walk into, it's not a good idea if that's gropey. Right. Know? So it's, it's really interesting to me, and I, I have to point out that I think it's great that you have not cease to grow and and expand your your understanding and even change of perspective on some things even though you come from a time when you know your experience was different and now you have a new understanding of maybe consent and what that means in a leather space and i mean there's so many changes i think within all communities over time eventually we we grow we change we evolve and with those changes and, and evolutions, like sometimes our perspectives and understandings need to shift with all of those changes if we're going to continue to survive as a community. And, and well, thank you for that. Although it, it's fuck, it's really hard. <laughs> and you know, it's not like I flipped a switch and you know, now I'm virtuous and down with consent and because. Oh my God, I have days when, you know, I'm sort of like, oh my God, a bunch of fucking Victorian virgins, you know, who can't be without a chaperone in the drawing room with another man, you know, mm -hmm. and blah, 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 there's all this, and it's just sex, it's just your body, have fun with it. It's a challenge, it's an ongoing challenge, and I have to have a lot of, you know, sit myself down to have a talk. But I think overall, you know, what I was saying earlier about leather being a strategy to find your people, absolutely it was that for me. It totally was that. My life has been so rich and wonderful. I have known amazing men and amazing women and had incredible, mind-blowing, life-changing experiences because of leather, right? Mm -hmm. I found my people with leather. Now, somebody who is 20 years old and non-binary, they need a way to find their people. You know, in a hostile world, they need a way to find their people. They need a way to find people who are going to be like, we're really different, but there are some deep down things where we are very much the same and come on in and let's see what we can get up to together you mm -hmm. know uh it is not a bad thing that even though there might be some a lot of overlap that 20 year old non-binary person their people are not necessarily my people even though that non-binary person they think about their people in terms of being leather and i think about my people in terms of being leather we're both using the same word there's some overlap you know it's it's a venn diagram mm -hmm. um and depending on whatever factors there's more or less space in the middle um but yeah it's it's, it's all leather yeah and i think for any of us i mean i'm 
20, ugh, I can't believe it, I'm 29 already. Um, but I mean, for any of us, you know, tw in their 20s or 30s or just coming into leather, you know, today would be foolish to think that in 20 or 30 years that the experience won't evolve and change as well. And in, in 20 or 30 years, I'm sure I'll be sitting in, in your shoes saying, I remember when this used to happen or that used to happen or we didn't used to do this or that. And, you know, that's okay. I think change is not necessarily a bad thing, but I can understand how it might be difficult to have a, such a profound and, and authentic experience and then to see the environment of which you experience that change over time. Um, you know, so I, I'm definitely empathetic to that, to that perspective, but at the same time, you know, I think it's important that we are open to change. And I think I see a little bit of that in you, would you say? Yeah. Although I, you know, I, I, I always have like my antenna up because, oh my God, I want to go to a, you know, I want to spend time in a dark, smoky leather bar wearing leather everybody in there is like wearing leather and it's gropey and if i see somebody i like i can without speaking a word come behind him push him up against the wall put the handcuffs on him you know do a reach around you know i want that you, know? <laughs> you want that fantasy i see <laughs> i i get that i realize that you know Many people I share space with don't, and you know there has to be some like recognition of the fact that not all spaces are going to be that Drew Kramer. Okay. <laughs> yes, yeah, snap out yes, of it, Drew. No. But <laughs> can I please have you know? And it can be like this little corner, right? Uh -huh. I'm okay with that. Can uh -huh. I please have that? You know. <laughs> and I, I'm sure you can still have that, but I think the way that that has to be accomplished or or approached is probably going to be much different than when you know you first had those experiences but for for those of us that are just kind of hearing you know your story and hearing where you come from i i'm curious to know if if you were to tell new people coming into the community what leather really means to you and why it's special what would that be i'm gonna say again find your people mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's that's what it always is and always has been for me. When you say find your people, are, are you saying that leather for you was more than a sexual experience, that for you it's more about community? It's kind of a, there's kind of a bait and switch thing going on, I've always thought, where what draws you in is getting your rocks off, right? Uh, uh -huh. I get my rocks off in this atypical, specific way. Oh, my God. How am I going to get my rocks off? Oh, oh, here's a signifier of other people who get their rocks off in atypical, specific ways. And hopefully, you know, for every pot, there's a lid. And maybe, you know, I'll find some lids, right? Mm -hmm. But because there's... That brings you into contact with people who have always felt themselves in groups where they should be a part of. They've found themselves to be on the outside looking in hmm. a bit. And they've spent their lives sort of looking for signals that there were other people like them. And they're very attuned to those signals and networks of symbolism, uh, <clears throat> you know, that experience, it's sort of, you know, I think like um, somebody I read a lot of in college, this guy named Joseph Campbell, had these ideas about the voyage of the hero. Mm -hmm. He looked at myths from all over the world, indigenous American traditions, the Greeks, the Norse, Gilgamesh, and like Jesus, and all these heroes are like parallel events where they discover that the person that they think is their father isn't really their father, and their father is actually a god, and that sets them apart from the people that they thought were their people, and they have to go out into the world to find their father and discover who they really are, and they fight monsters, and... In a lot of myths, they go to hell. They go down to the underworld, to Hades, 
And when they come up, they become gods themselves. And I think you could construct a sort of voyage, definitely my generation of Leathermen. I mean, when I meet somebody who is about my age and first went into a gay bar in the late 80s or whatever, we know each other. You know, mm -hmm. we may have never met, but we know each other. And I tell him my stories and he tells me his stories. We're telling each other the same stories, you know. Mm -hmm. And pretty quickly we realize we don't even have to tell each other our stories. Even though in so many ways, in politics, in race and ethnicity, in whatever, we may be really, really, really different in fundamental ways, we see the world the same way, you know? And, I mean, especially when I was younger, I knew a lot of leather men. And for them, it wasn't necessarily about the, the BDSM. More typically, they grew up in very conservative, you know, often, like, religiously conservative families and households and they figure out they're gay and that they can't make that compute you know they can't reconcile that within themselves a lot of times they find their way into really sort of like masculine associated professions like the military or law enforcement you know because if they do that maybe nobody will catch on to the fact that they like to suck dick right and they find their way into leather with, you know, because like, again, the trappings of hyper-masculinity, you know, the, that goes with the costuming of some versions of leather, that makes them feel really, really comfortable mm -hmm. about themselves, you know? But that doesn't mean that they shed their really conservative upbringing, you know, and their really conservative views, right? <laughs> and I mean... I've known some leathermen and loved and cherished and respected and embraced some leathermen who I am not gonna fucking talk about politics <laughs> with because oh my well, fucking Well, it seems to God. me like your sentiment is that people that went through similar experiences as far as leather for you, leather being like a unif unifying element no matter how different your upbringing was and maybe how different your beliefs and political opinions might be, like you still have this kind of one thing that you went through together and whether or not you knew each other, you just kind of feel like this sense of unification with that person. Is that kind of what yeah. I'm getting? Yeah, it, it, it's sort of like the internal journey, exactly the same, right? Mm -hmm. The external journey can be whatever. But as long as your internal journey has like the same shape and outline as my internal journey. Oh my God. You know, we're getting so deep, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, before we go on, I did want to give you a little bit of an apology. I, d I didn't mean to back you into a corner there with the whole topic of consent. I know that is a uh, that kind of understanding of, of consent has changed over time. But I, I just thought it was important to point out that, you know, I thought that based on your experiences and your, your sharing with us that I saw some some growth and, and change of perspective up until this point with your idea of what consent was and, and how that's evolved and changed, you know, over time for you in, in your mind of your understanding. And, and, and like, as, as I mentioned, uh, <clears throat> It's a process, as we say, and, you know, it's not a light bulb coming on experience. It's definitely mm -hmm. a process, and that winds its wending way. And sort of like an encapsulation of that process happened years and years and years ago. Well, not that many. Uh, but anyway, it was at Palm Springs Leather Pride, mm -hmm. which Ben Cowfer refers to as pumpkin spice latte pride. <laughs> What, why? Um, which I love and I hate. <laughs> anyway, there we are, pumpkin spice latte pride. Okay. And um, that year, the then president of Palm Springs Leather Order of the Desert, which puts the whole weekend together, 
he had this thing where he wanted to have the president's lunch with leather women, right? Okay. Um, and actually, I have my suspicions that that was a nefarious plot to get women out of the way so the boys can have their naked pool party um, without oh. women being present. But huh. okay. I don't know. That's just supposition on my part. Totally true. Anyway, <laughs> okay. Um, spill the tea, Drew. Spill it. <laughs> yeah. So I like show up at what I was dismissively calling the luscious ladies of leather luncheon and sit down next to Scarlet Sin. And Scarlet had signed on to give a presentation, which I was unable to attend because I was doing a presentation like in the room next door, uh, scheduling conflict. But anyway, she was talking about consent. Okay. And I basically, like, at this lunch, you know, with, with everybody else around the table talking about whatever, Scarlett and I just had this really beautiful exchange where I laid out for her how before there was equal rights. There was gay liberation. And gay liberation was gay is good, period. Not sinful, not shameful, not bad, not criminal, not wrong. Gay is good. And it was part of sexual, the sexual revolution, right? Okay. So gay sex is good, period. It's not shameful, it's not sinful, it's not bad, it's not wrong, there's no qualifiers, as long as there's mutual consent, and as long as everybody is wearing condoms all the time, and no, gay sex is great, right? Right, period. Period. And I see, over my lifetime, there has been this backlash to the sexual revolution. And part of it was... Like back in the 19, I think it was like the 19, late 1980s, maybe early 1990s, there was this weird phenomenon where there were these allegations of ritual satanic sexual abuse at daycare centers across huh. the country. And these psychotherapists, alleged psychotherapists, would basically take these, you know, small children and coerce them into making these allegations of that what that you know sexual rituals satanic abuse happened to them right and it it totally wasn't true it totally 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 wasn't true and lives were ruined and people went to jail until it was sort of figured out that like this is not the practice of psychotherapy and along with that, there was this, it was called the Recovered Memory Movement, okay. where people would be encouraged by their therapist. You know, their therapist would sort of say, so you feel lonely and alienated and you have trouble navigating intimate relationships. And maybe that's because you were sexually abused at a very young age and you repress those memories, right? <clears throat> Oh, I see. So they were kind of, in some ways, programming things into their brain or or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Because, like, as as a matter of scientific fact, that's not how memory works, mm -hmm. right? At all. If you have a memory of what you did earlier this evening, that's basically what you're doing is you're telling yourself a story of what you did this evening. And that story is really subject to a lot of suggestion, right? At the right point, if I said, oh, my gosh, and you must have been sweating bullets because, you know, it was really hot in that room, right? You'd be like, oh, my gosh, yeah, I remember it as being really, no, it was 68 degrees, you know? Memory is a really, really tricky thing, and that tricky thing was, like, exploited, right? I see. My childhood during the 1970s is completely different from the childhoods of kids today, where I was practically feral, you know? Mm -hmm. My 
mother would, when she wanted to get work done around the house, she would literally, like nine years old, she would lock the door behind me and like send me out <laughs> into the world and like come back at 5 p.m. for dinner, right? right? And I grew up with the uh, the commercial, it's 10 o'clock. Do you know where your children are? <laughs> exactly. Different and, childhood. <laughs> you know, and ju just the fact that you were probably like from a really young age, right? Told by parents, teachers, other adults that you trusted and, you know, you believed had your best interests at heart, mm -hmm. that there are people out there in the world who want to touch you in bad ways. Mm -hmm. I remember e even in as young as preschool and kindergarten having a, a videotape shown to us called Stranger Danger, and it talked about that. Exactly. Yeah. And like, you know, number one, better than 95% of childhood sexual abuse, right? If you really wanted to warn children, you know, protect children from sexual predators, what you would do is say, do not ever be alone in a room with an older male family member. Not your older brother, not your father, absolutely not your uncle, not your grandfather. You know, because in most cases, that's who the perpetrators are, right? It's the people that you that you know, usually. I mean, in, in a lot of cases, it's people that you know that yeah. that, that happens with, yeah. It's, it's, it's not somebody in a raincoat hanging out in the bushes by the playground. Not all the time, right. Yeah. So. The fact that young children are kind of traumatized, you know, around issues of sex and sexuality, I think that didn't just happen, but, you know, it's part of a backlash from the religious right. And maybe possibly consent is you know and this is just like me talking this is not you know not the my opinions are not the opinions of my employer or blah blah blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so this is what you were sharing with scarlet when you were sitting next the, to her this is, this is like part of my struggle with the issue of consent right okay and if it's a very different world and i think that maybe possibly consent and the discourse around consent plays into that backlash and anyway, like sitting there with Scarlett, she gave me space to basically like say all that. And I listened to her and her responses about how for many people, the absence of consent perpetuates trauma that they've experienced mm -hmm. and can really shut people inside whatever teeny tiny cramped space they feel they're safe in. Mm -hmm. And if some of us have to, you know, give up a little bit of our sexual freedom so that a lot of people can experience their sexual freedom, that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad trade-off, mm -hmm. you know. Now, was this something that you had considered prior to your discussion, or was this a new concept that was being brought to your attention by Scarlett? Uh, new concept, new way of framing the entire discussion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what it really goes to, what it really is, you know, what we were talking about uh, before, where I think that what I realized, maybe both of us realized that even though Scarlett's external journey and my external journey might be really, really, really different. We had our internal journeys, our respective internal journeys had many of the same shapes and outlines and hit many of the same points. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, which the shape and outline of my internal journey, I call leather. That allowed Scarlett and I to come together with respect, with mutual respect and admiration and empathy and move definitely, you know, I don't want to speak about Charlotte, uh, Scarlett's process, but moved my process forward considerably. And mm -hmm. that, that again, is like a thing that I think is so wonderful about leather. Well, I, I, again, it seems like you've grown from that experience and, you know, kudos to, to you and kudos to Scarlett for having the 
openness to sit down with you and let you voice your thoughts and respond in that way and, you know, promote growth and maybe a change of perspective on your part. Yeah, and I, I, to, to this day, I love her to pieces. Mm -hmm. Love her, love her, love her. Yeah, I actually watched Scarlett Sin's interview with Doug on um, Fireside Chats. Have you heard of Fireside Chats before? I have not. So Doug, Doug, um, I believe his last name is pronounced O'Keefe. Sorry, Doug, if you're listening, I'm totally mispronouncing your last name, but Doug O'Keefe. And uh, he does something very similar to what I do uh, with the video, a, a YouTube channel where he talks with people from all over the world, people of leather and kink and uh, really, really interesting. And Scarlett uh, really kind of has like her whole life story up there on the channel. Um, really, oh my God. really interesting. Yeah. So I thought about reaching out to Scarlett to have her here, but I, I thought, well, that <laughs> Doug just did such a great job with that talk with her that I don't know <laughs> that I could match up. <laughs> but um, anyways, I, I really appreciate your transparency with all of that and just kind of sharing with us that whole process that you went through. I do want to pivot a little bit because I want to know a little bit more about your experience with ACT UP. And that, that was a huge organization during the AIDS crisis and still is today, right? Is it still active in any way? Uh, it, it, it definitely is. And it also, the beauty of it and how it became such a, a powerful thing, you had a bunch of gay, primarily white men with their privileges who worked in like in New York City, in advertising, in media, in public relations, in finance, and who were completely apolitical in the way that you can be with privilege, all of a sudden they are terrified because they risk and they are in fact having all of those privileges taken away from them, right? And so they're sort of like groping to become political. And you have a bunch of women, lesbians, who have been active for decades in things like the women's peace movement and the fight for nuclear disarmament and all these other great 1970s, 1980s social justice movements who know how to be political and they all came together. <laughs> <laughs> well, for those who are listening who might not know what ACT UP is, could you tell us a little bit about like what the what was the mission of ACT UP? ACT UP was the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, ACTUP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. We are a diverse, nonpartisan group of individuals united in our anger and committed to direct action to end the AIDS crisis. We protest and demonstrate. We meet with government officials. We are not silent. Now, how did you come across ACT UP and how did you first become a part of it? What was that first experience like or, or first taste of that organization like for you? Uh, I actually, when I was, I guess, a senior in college, and again, as we, we talked about in the last episode, like, during the 1980s, it's not like there was a doctor. Well, there was Dr. Fauci, but he was not given the platform that he was then. So there's this thing that's killing gay men, but there are no, no, no good sources of information. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of bad sources of information about how that's happening, why that's happening. And I started reading a publication, a weekly newspaper out of New York City called The Village Voice. And the coverage of The Village Voice on AIDS was great. And this would be in 1987, and ACT UP formed in 1987. And several of the uh, columnists in The Village Voice started writing about ACT UP including this guy named Michael Musto, who was like the nightlife columnist who would write about club openings and what was happening at, you know, Nell's and with Andy Warhol and everything else like this, right? Mm -hmm. And he went to an ACT UP meeting and he starts writing about ACT UP and he starts covering like ACT UP demonstrations in the same <laughs> like vocabulary <laughs> that he covers. Clubs and stuff. Yeah, the saint opening. Um which was 
really, really, like, really relatable. But before there was ACT UP, like, outside of ACT UP, there was only fear. You know, fear and fatalism that I'm going to die, you know. But ACT UP brought, you know, by coming together with other people who were directly affected by this, who were going through the same thing that you were, it was a way of finding tremendous power. Mm-hmm. And so after college, I moved to Philadelphia and I saw this and I knew had knew what ACT UP was from reading the Village Voice, but I it was only in New York. But I saw this flyer pasted to a lamppost that said, ACT UP Philadelphia meeting, Monday, 7.30, and I was there. And I was at, like, the very first meeting of ACT UP Philadelphia. What did their meetings look like? Well, ACT UP Philadelphia, there were, like, I don't know, 15 of us. And we were meeting in the Sunday school room of a Unitarian church. So we were all sitting on, like, little, tiny, little kid chairs. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Little bean bags and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, kind of. And like, you know, in this Sunday school playroom, Mm -hmm. right, which was a little bit okay. But a friend of mine that I met, you know, at that very first meeting, he had read stuff about ACT UP in New York. And both of us were like, well, you know, it's only 90 miles north. Why don't we take the train up there and go to an actual ACT UP meeting? Oh, my fucking God. I walk into this room at the the center in New York City, then the Gay and Lesbian Community Center, now the LGBTQ Center. But anyway, it's packed. It is packed. It is packed, packed, packed. And there are speakers at the front of the room who are among some of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. And it was all about action. It was all about, okay, here's the problem, right? What action can we take to address this problem right because until then it was like let's not sit here and just take this i mean at that point before act up i mean i'm sure there were other organizations but i can just imagine like you're hit with this virus nobody's doing anything about it the government doesn't really care about it at that point nobody's really doing any big research or anything like that and you're just like sitting ducks, basically. And this gave us like a sense right. of purpose and mission and, and a, a unified vision, would you say? Ab- yeah. And, and it was it was kind of like the system, you know, the patriarchal heterosexual system was not helping, was doing nothing, mm-hmm. you know, at all for gay men who were dying. And there were many organizations who took the approach you know, kind of like how AIDS Project Los Angeles started. It was, oh my God, the system is not working for, is not taking care of gay men who are sick. So we've got to do it ourselves. It was like a community self-help effort, uh, which was beautiful, wonderful. But ACT UP was sort of like, let's confront this system because yes, it's wonderful what we're doing, we do not have the resources. We do not have the access. We do not have the power to really help. Mm-hmm. Let's confront this system and get that power. Take that power from them. Now, what was, um, I mean, how many times have you been arrested? <laughs> I guess I just wanted, I mean, were, were, your pro, were there protests? Were there, like, what kind of things was that up? doing at the time to get the attention of the system? Um, it was basically, and I, I, this, this was actually a little before me, but it was, um, it's kind of a, the first example that, that comes to mind. Uh, the New York Times, which was the paper of record, no coverage at all devoted to medical information about AIDS, none. They would run opinion pieces uh, like there was one by a conservative named William F. Buckley, who basically said his proposal, what he argued should be done, was that a plus sign should be tattooed on the ass of a gay man who tests positive for AIDS, for <sighs> HIV. Wow. Like this was put forward as oh, here's something that we might want to look at, you know, to 
tackle this whole AIDS thing that's happening, right? Mm -hmm. um, as like a reasonable proposal, okay? And the New York Times did not use the word gay. They only used the word homosexual. And ACT UP did a campaign to basically change all that. And yes, it included several hundred people protesting outside their offices and affinity groups, like smaller affinity groups, which were groups of like 10 to 20 people of people who knew each other and trusted each other and consented to work together, you know, mm -hmm. keep taking care of each other because uh, what they were doing is dangerous, would do things like find their way inside and chain themselves to the desk of Punch Soulsberger, the editor of the New York Times, uh, or the publisher of the New York Times. And also they did this thing where all of the graphic design public relations gays printed up on a newsprint what looked like like the very top sheet, you know, like the front page and the back page of the New York Times. Uh -huh. And they would go to all the newspaper boxes around town and they'd take out the real top sheet of the New York Times and they'd put in <laughs> Act Up's version, which oh, was New York Crimes, okay. which went into detail about every, but it was written like news stories, you know, with lead paragraphs and everything like this. So people picking it up but not reading closely would be like, huh, oh, they're talking a lot about AIDS today, right? Before they realize that, you know. It wasn't the real paper, but this was like a way for them to get the word out, basically. Yeah. And, you know, after that, I mean, things did not change immediately. But after that, like, the New York Times was very much aware that they were getting the story really fucking wrong. Um, and things slowly, slowly, slowly got better, and they stopped referring to ACT UP as a homosexual protest group, <laughs> whatever yeah. that would be. <laughs> um, now, do you remember a specific moment of your interaction with ACT UP? Yeah, it, it took me, uh, boy, do I ever. Um, if you think walking into a leather bar is a really intimidating experience, mm -hmm. try walking into a room filled with several hundred people who have all been like arrested together. And like I said, are some of the smartest people I've ever met in my entire life. And I spent a year <laughs> after I moved to New York of just sort of like, how do I plug in here? And then uh, somebody like stood up in front of this room of several hundred people, which was, I think at that point, uh, we were meeting in Cooper Union, which is a giant space because there were over a thousand. We had outgrown the space in the center. So we're meeting at Cooper Union. But anyway, some, somebody stood up and said, so in 1988, the Democratic candidate, Michael Dukakis, when asked about AIDS, said, well, basically my position on that subject don't differ significantly from those of uh, Vice President George Bush. And they moved on, right? This is 1992. This is an election year. We are not going to let that happen. If you want to be a part of a new group forming, a new committee forming, working group forming, AIDS Campaign 92, come to a meeting this Wednesday night at the ACT UP workspace at 7 p.m. And I did. What ACT UP did in 1992 was absolutely fucking amazing. We printed up these signs uh, that said, what about AIDS? And we sent them out to ACT UP chapters and anybody else, you know, who we could get a, like a name and address for around the country. And Basically, the instruction was whenever a candidate, Republican primary candidate, Democrat primary candidate, whatever, is making an appearance anywhere near you, near you go there, hold up this sign, right? Hmm. What about AIDS in big, clear letters? And if they take questions, you know, demand, you know, shout it out. What about AIDS, right? 
all the way up to like before he won the Democratic primary, then Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton, right, made an appearance at New York. And basically, he had been not taking the bait. He had been not taking about AIDS. And so he made an appearance at a fundraiser in New York, not a campaign event, a fundraiser. ACT UP managed to, members of ACT UP managed to get in there and shut it down. And a member of ACT UP, Bob Rafsky, who was very visibly like living with AIDS, right, basically got in Clinton's face and said, I'm dying of AIDS, but you're dying of ambition. And wow. all the newspapers were there. And, <laughs> you know, there was big picture of really spitting angry Bob Rafsky confronting Bill Clinton. And after that, Bill Clinton's people got in touch with us and basically said, like, what the fuck do you people want from me? Hmm. And we told him and we exacted from him a set of promises of what he would do to fight the AIDS crisis if he was elected president. And did he act on those? Yes and no. Okay. Uh, very mixed bag. But he definitely, he paid attention to it. And there were huge reforms to like the FDA drug approval process uh, that took place while he was president during his first term. But basically one of, one of to my mind, the, the culmination of that, the first presidential debate, Governor Bill Clinton from Arkansas, Vice President George H.W. Bush. President Bush took the question first and he was asked, so what about AIDS, right? And he was like, well, definitely we're doing all we can and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, AIDS is very uncertain, important. And Barbara and I are very concerned about AIDS. Uh, over to you, Governor Clinton. Mr. President, that is the first time that you have said the word AIDS in a public forum. Hmm. You have not done a good job on AIDS. You have done nothing on AIDS. And history will remember that, Mr. President, if I am elected. <laughs> and fucking Bill Clinton went down our laundry list, right? And he had ammunition and, at this point because it had been handed to him by ACT UP, what, what was being demanded of our yeah, next president. And, and, you know, millions of Americans tuned in to watch that debate. Yeah. And they heard that message, right? Mm -hmm. And after he was elected, he fell far short, but we could hold him accountable. Mm -hmm. You know, don't break these promises, right? And so that was the first time that there was ever a major commitment to uh, research and treatment and care for people with AIDS. And the, the epidemic had been going on at that point for, you know, 11 years, right. you know, more than a decade. It seems like your whole, like, gay life has really ran fairly parallel to the whole AIDS epidemic and, and ACT UP's outreach and, and the whole thing. Almost exactly so, because I had my first sexual experience with a man when I was 16 years old. Mm -hmm. And that was 1981. And on July 5th, I think it was, of 1981, there was an article buried in the New York Times uh, that said 41 cases of a rare cancer found in homosexual men. So, like, my sexuality, my sexual life has completely run parallel with AIDS from the very start. Now, I, I mean, you don't have to answer any question or this question specifically as well, but I'm curious to know if, uh, if you, I mean, are, are you positive or, or negative or what's been your journey with that? I somehow, miraculously, for absolutely no good reason, um, although possibly, I mean, I, I've never had it tested, but there is um, a not very common genetic abnormality that basically gives you cellular immunity. Hmm. Um, but I, I test negative. I continue to test negative. I see. 
But you were still sexually active during that time. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which, which, you know, like last March when COVID hit, one of the things that really hit me is I felt so incredibly sad for, for people like you, Brandon, because, you know, you are a gay man. You're in your 20s, uh, your late 20s, but still your 20s. And, and I remember what it's like to be a gay man in his 20s. And if your experiences are anything like me, all I wanted to do at every opportunity was to go out with my friends. Yeah. And go out and meet people and hook up and meet people and go on dates and dance and have fun. And here comes this second pandemic. And, you know, last March, how long is this going to be around? Nobody. Nobody. We, we thought it would be over in 14 days. I couldn't believe I can't, Looking back now, it's, it's so naive, but it, it's it's true. I. A lot of people are like, oh, we feel so bad that you're because I, I won my leather title weeks before the shutdown. Oh, my God. <laughs> so people oh are like, God. oh, we're so sorry. And in, in some ways, I'm I'm thankful for how people have been able to come together. I'm, I'm grateful for all the organizations and how how the leather community really shown. It's it's how people can come together and be helpful. I mean, the day of the shutdown, the LA Leather COVID-19 Assist came about, uh, which was an organization formed by Jeff May and um, Eric Wilson to be an aid to people in, in this time of crisis. The LALC Cares came out with their helping hand and, uh, and the Boulevard Pantry and the Lifeline and all of these things. And it showed me what this community was made of. And I was, oh, yeah. it was really inspiring. And in some ways, you know, sex and kink and BDSM, all that fun stuff will all be there. But this was a time that we had to come together. And uh, yeah, of course, I had my fantasies of like, oh, I'm going to be Mr. Bullet Leather and I'm going to have all this great fun. And But not everybody's journey needs to be like that. And I don't know, I feel like I tried to make the best of it. And here I am talking to you over the Internet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, but how, I mean, had we had not had this opportunity to talk to each other, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know anything about you. I mean, you know, as terrible as this thing is, is how many people's lives have been taken from this, you know, we can still come out of this and try to take something positive out of it. And I've gotten to know so many people on such a deep level that I may not have had the opportunity to, you know, at least not in this, in this platform in this way. And, um, I mean, how many times do we get to sit down with someone at the bar and talk to them for three hours at a time and get to know their their childhood and their whole life story and how they got to where they are today? Yeah. I, I, let me tell you a story. Um, one of the most amazing things that's ever happened to me in my life. Mm -hmm. I had just moved to Philadelphia. I didn't know anybody, but there was a dirty movie theater Right, they showed gay porn mm -hmm. and movie theater. Boy, am I using that word loosely. <laughs> right? Okay. You know, it was like this commercial storefront. You know, like I don't know, eighteen feet wide and a building fourteen feet deep with you know apartments on top or whatever. It was like right around the corner from my house, and this was nineteen eighty-eight, and. You go in the door, there's this guy behind a glass window, and you give him five bucks. And they had like this curtain that was made up of four-inch-wide strips of rubber. And you like go in there, and they have a bunch of movie theater, you know, fold-down chairs. And there was a screen that was probably like smaller than the average flat-screen TV. And they'd show gay porn there, right? And, you know, it was dark and you'd sit there and, like, somebody would move next to you and, you know, you reach over and give hand jobs or whatever. And anyway, so I was in there one night and out front, you know, you could hear, like, there was a bell or whatever. And you could hear the exterior door 
open and it was a really, really cold night. So there was also like a sort of gust of cold air that, you know, came back into the theater. And anyway, there was this sound that was sound like somebody, you know, moving like a metal cart or whatever. Uh-huh. And then murmurs, you know, as the guy gave over his five bucks and then more metal cart sound. And this guy using a walker sort of like propels himself, you know, struggles to get through while moving with his walker through the plastic strips at the door to the theater. You know, I and other people like turned around to like get a look at, you know, when somebody came in, you took a look and saw if if you were interested. And this man was a human skeleton with skin. And he had Kaposi sarcoma, which is these really dark purple-black blotches, yeah. um, you know, on his face and his neck and his arms. And, you know, like his skin had shrunken back from his face, so it, like, really looked like a skull. Yeah. And he just, like, scooted his walker to the side of the door and just planted himself there. So, all of a sudden, um, getting a hand job was the last thing on anybody's mind. And one guy who was sitting there sort of like stood up and heads up the aisle. And as he's, <laughs> he like slows down as he gets to the door. Mm-hmm. And then he stops. And this frail man in the walker, this guy like, puts his arms around him and gives him a hug. Wow. And then goes out. And then somebody else got up to leave. And before they went through the door, mm-hmm. um, they gave this guy a hug. And, you know, he was like, the physical embodiment of all of our deepest fear, you know, there we were, we just wanted to go out and get a hand job and into the party walks death, Mm -hmm. you know, and say what you want about gay men who are, consumerist and can be so cruel to other gay men and make people with different bodies and different backgrounds, races and ethnicities feel bad about being who they are. Everybody who left before I left stopped and gave that man a hug, you know, without exception. Um, Wow. And, you know, when horrible things happen to not just one people, but happen to a community of people, that community really discovers who they are, mm-hmm. you know? And whenever, especially in leather title holder circles or whatever, like whenever the word brotherhood, mm-hmm. you know, is tossed around, Oh my God, you kids today, you don't know, (laughs) or maybe you do know after, you know, going through COVID, but. (sighs) No, I I know. I mean, it's just, we can say it, but what does it look like? And that's kind of where you're getting at, right? Is what does brotherhood look like? Imagine somebody, you know, slightly, and you may not even like them very much. They might be kind of an asshole, but you find out that, oh, they're dying now. And so you join a list of people, their friends, who, you know, because they live alone in this, you know, fourth floor walk-up apartment, are basically taking shifts mm-hmm. to be there and sit with the person. Um, and that's what thousands and thousands of gay men did for each other. Wow. You know, and that's like, oh, that's a thing that I witnessed and I did myself, you know? 
Well, we're going to take a quick pause here and end our part two with Drew Kramer this week. Stay tuned for our final episode together, part three, coming out next Tuesday. For early access to that episode and many more, don't forget that you can subscribe to the Leather Talk Patreon for as little as $3 a month, where you can find me as Leather Talk Mr. Bullet. All of the proceeds go directly towards maintaining the podcast and helping to keep hearing these very important personal stories from individuals within the Leather and Kink communities. I would also like to announce an upcoming event that I am hosting alongside Queen Anna Algos, Miss Sanctuary Leather 2020. I will be broadcasting over Zoom from the Bullet Bar, and she will be doing the same from Sanctuary LAX Studios. Those who would like to join us at those prospective locations in person may do so on May 30th at 3 p.m. You can also log in directly using our Zoom code, which will be available on both of our social medias. We are calling this event Leather Together, where we will host several panels covering the topics of leather history, BDSM, and personal stories from various leather title holders. We will also have performances and prizes, and all of the proceeds that we make from prize items and donations will go directly towards the LELC Cares, Boulevard Pantry, and Reach LA. I will have links in the description below. As always, you can find me on Instagram and Patreon as Leather Talk Mr. Bullet and Twitter as Branded Bullet LA. Don't forget to rate and subscribe. And as always, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay geeky.